Today's episode of the Velo News Podcast is brought to you by InsideTracker.com. When you love to do what you love, like running, like bike racing, like enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. Inside Tracker can help you do that. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, your lifestyle, and your nutrition habits and tells you how to live, look, age, and perform better. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Then Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, helps you reach your performance goals, as well as helping you live a longer, healthier life. Right now, listeners of the Velo News podcast can get a great deal. You can get 25% off everything in the Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Velo News. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Velo News. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a Tuesday morning here at the home offices outside of Boulder, Colorado, where I have renamed my spare bedroom here. They're the Isle of Man from our Cavendish. It's the, uh, the, uh, ex- the satellite offices of the Isle of Man because I am a Mark Cavendish fan. Oh, Mark Cavendish. Uh, we just got done watching stage 10 of the Tour de France, which saw Cav take his... 33rd career Tour de France stage win in a thrilling, if somewhat predictable, sprint into Valence. Uh, he was powered ahead by his Dakunic Quickstep teammates who did the textbook lead out and just rode everyone off their wheels, kept Calf pro- uh, protected, and then unleashed him like 150 meters before the line after the finish. Cav said, you know, I didn't really have to do anything except sprint in those last 150 meters. He won stage win number 33. So he's only one win away from the big record. Eddie Merckx's uh, all-time Tour de France stage win record of 34 wins. And I believe Cavendish has now breathed new life and interest into this Tour de France, because up to this point, it's just been sort of this clobber fest with Tadej Pogacar. Anyway, uh, here to describe, here to talk about all things Cavendish is our uh, in-house Isle of Man and Mark Cavendish expert, the wonderful Saivo Shade, joining us from the actual Isle of Man, not the Isle of Man satellite office here in my spare bedroom. Saiv, welcome to the show. It's almost like you employed me just for this moment. Well, I feel like throughout this entire episode, I've just been asking you questions about Mark Cavendish. Like, do you see him at the store? Do you run into people who know him? Have you seen him on bike rides? Like, the Isle of Man is not a big place, and you have to have, there has to be some sort of weird connection that you have to Mark Cavendish. Um, well, I mean, I, I grew up in a cycling family, so uh, yeah, that, that's my connection to Mark Cavendish when I when I was racing as a kid down at the the local sports center and um, he's a a few years older than me I'd like to say um but he was uh yeah already one of the the top riders there um top riders on the Isle of Man he was traveling away to to the UK for for races so that was my first introduction to Mark Cavendish when I was I would say about 11 or 12 
Uh, was he dropping F-bombs every other word back then? Because, gosh, love Mark Cavendish, but in these post-race interviews, every other word out of him uh, is an expletive and must be bleeped out to keep um, our ears safe. Uh, was he a real potty mouth back then as well? I mean, that's just how we speak on the Isle of Man. I mean, I'm having to rein it in quite a lot here. Um, you know, it's just every every other every other word is an F or a B or whatever. Well, thank you for reining it in because, as you know, the Villain News podcast is a family-friendly podcast, and uh, we need to keep the delicate ears safe out there. So, Saivo uh, Shea, if you know if she screws up, we'll bleep her, everyone. Don't you worry, um, Saivo. We have a lot of topics to get to surrounding Mark Cavendish and his win and his pursuit of history and his place in history. Uh, my question for you, though, when you look at stage 10 and the win today, um, the performance of Cavendish, but also of his Dakuna Quickstep team, like what stands out to you about how they orchestrated this victory and what it means for the race going forward? I think I think Mark Cavendish really said it best in his post-race interview. It was just that textbook lead out you know every it was almost like going back to the HTC days you know where it was like drilling it on the front you know in a in a line uh running just all the other competitors off their wheel um and they took it from uh reasonably far out I mean they had the wherewithal to kind of let maybe some of the other teams deal with the pace setting um, when those echelons happened. But once things started to come back together, you know, they were on the front drilling it. Um, and yeah, they just, they led him out so quickly that none of the other sprinters, not even Wout Van Aert, had the legs to to overtake Cavendish in the end. Yeah, and they protected him on this uh, hilly transition stage as well. So uh, this stage, stage 10, Albertville to Valence, middle of the Alps, but not an Alpine stage. A real cute thing that the tour organizers were doing there. It's like, hey, let's stage this race in the middle of the stunning Alps, but they will go over exactly zero Alps today. Um, But kind of a transition stage. You know, there were two climbs on the day, the last one coming 40 kilometers from the finish. And I remember looking at this stage when we were putting together our Tour de France previews and saying, ooh, this is like a potential breakaway day, or this is a Sagan day, because if the, uh, you know, if, if Bora or someone really drills it on the front of uh, the Peloton on that last climb, they could dispatch some of the heavier sprinters. Like this is a, this is kind of a make it or break it day for the heavy sprinters. And Cav stayed in there. He didn't get dropped. Takuna Quickstep kept him near the front. And like you said, then they drilled it all the way to the finish and, and set him up perfectly for the win. But like, this was not necessarily a stage that I had earmarked as like, oh, well, Cavendish is obviously going to win this one. Like this to me was like a, a potential Cav gets dropped and finishes in the Crupetto day. So the fact that he won it, I mean, is a sign that he's in wonderful shape, that he's confident, but also that his team is doing really well. And I mean, it really sort of, sets in 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 motion the potential for what a storyline that I didn't think was going to happen. Like after he won that first stage win back uh, last week, it was like, great, you know, Cav has won a stage win. This Tour de France is a success already. But, oh, let's not really go talking about breaking the record of 34. You know, he still has to survive the mountains. He gets dropped in the mountains. He could get time cut. And we saw some sprinters get time cut the other day with Arnaud Damar exiting stage left because he got time cut. But now as we look at it, there's four more, you know, what you would call traditional flat stages coming up, stages 12, 13, 16, and 21. And he only needs to win two of those to break the record. And, you know, when I think about how Cavs win today has refocused that storyline of his pursuit of this record, 
the the win today was like a wow moment. Like this is this may this could happen, and this pr- this probably will happen. Yeah, I think today's stage has really kind of tipped us over that precipice in terms of whether or not this um, uh, record will be beaten. Um, I think the way that Quickstep played it today, uh, the way that they controlled the start of the stage, they only let two riders go, just showed how much confidence they had in Cavendish. And by doing that, they made it a much easier stage. You know, they Tim de Klerk was just on it from right from the start. Um, and nullified anything that looked too dangerous. Um, and they really did, They the whole team worked as a unit today. And I think that's, um, you know, what's helped Cavendish over perhaps some of the other sprinters where um, their teams are kind of a mixture of different um, focuses, you know, and so they're, what they're having to do is just ride along and, you know, see what they can do at the finish. But at the moment in the form that Cavendish is in, Nobody can beat him if they go up against him in that straight sprint. I mean, all the pretty much all the pure sprinters have gone from the race. So, you know, they've got to figure out another way around him. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's been quite incredible. I mean, just to think last year, Cavendish was um, at the end of, I think it was Gent-Vevelgum, just in bits because he thought, you know, that was going to be his last race. He was going to be retiring next year. He didn't even know if he had a contract for this year. Um, and then, you know, two, two, three weeks ago, he was, he was not going to the tour. Like he wasn't expected to go to the tour. Sam Bennett was in decent form. Then, you know, things started to change at the tour of Belgium when Cavendish had to replace uh, Bennett because of his uh, injured knee. And that win on the final stage of the tour of Belgium really kind of showed that he was, he was in a place that he could do something at the tour if he got to go, because that was, you know, even though it was a low ranked race, it was against some serious um, sprinters. But even then, you know, when he won that first one, like you say, it's like, oh, it's nice. But, you know, there's so many other guys here that could do something. Caleb Ewan, you know, was really the big favorite. And I think that's possibly been the tipping point is Ewan leaving the race. Yeah. When you think about it, it's sort of like throughout this progression of Mark Cavendish's comeback, the story of the last six months or whatever. It's like, there's always been the, yeah, but, yeah, but. And like, he's cleared all these different hurdles. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, he wins some stages at the Tour of Turkey. Yeah, but it's against old Andre Greipel and a bunch of like B sprinters. Okay, well, he wins a stage at the Tour of Belgium. Yeah, but it's the Tour of Belgium and the stages aren't that hard. It's not the Tour de France. It's not as competitive. And, you know, Sam Bennett will be the sprinter. Hey, Sam Bennett's out. He's in the Tour. Yeah, but look, Arno Damar, Caleb Ewan, you know, some of these really class sprinters are there. He'll be happy to finish. He was getting time cut a few years ago. And then the 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 skies have opened. The, the clouds have cleared and the pathway has emerged uh, because Caleb Ewan, out. Tim Merlier, out. Jasper Philipson, eh, not quite there yet. Andre Greipel, very old. Wout Van Aert, still recovering from appendicitis, not quite there. Peter Sagan, doesn't really have it. Nasser Bouhani, eh. Michael Matthews, eh. You know, like all of these guys are who are still in the race are, are class sprinters. But when you put them up against where Cavendish is from a form and a confidence perspective, they're kind of not there. And when you put them up against Takuna Quickstep, they are miles behind where Cavendish is. And that to me is the real tipping point. And so, you know, I, you know, a week ago, 
if you would have given me odds on Mark Cavendish breaking history, I would have put it at maybe like 10 to 1. And now it's sort of, I actually say it's maybe 60-40 in Cavendish's favor. And that's a heck of a turnaround. And again, this is the story of the race. This has become like the big story of the race. Think about how many times we talked about Chris Froome and his attempt at breaking history and how amazing that would be when five tours to equal history. And now we have Mark Cavendish who's going to break history. This is a hundred and whatever year old race. Like new records do not get broken every year or even every decade. It's it's just a cool story to watch. How's it being received back in GB and then also on the Isle of Man? Um, I mean, it's been pretty well received in the Isle of Man. The Manx media is completely full of um, Mark Cavendish stuff. Everybody's talking about it. I mean, like literally everybody Anywhere I go, I just hear people talking about Mark Cavendish. I was telling you earlier that, yeah, I was sat on the bus coming home from a night out with my friends at like 11 o'clock at night. And there was a couple in front of me talking about Mark Cavendish. Didn't quite get it right. Uh, you know, the one of them turned to the other and said, oh, did you hear Mark Cavendish has won the Tour de France? But, you know, they were, they were talking about the Tour de France. Um, and, you know, when I was out with... When I was out with my friends, I went off to go to the toilet and I came back and they were like, oh, yeah, we've just been talking about Mark Cavendish and then just stopped and carried on talking about other stuff. I wasn't even in the room. I didn't start the conversation. They were just talking about Mark Cavendish without me. Um, so, yeah, it's it, everybody that I've come across anyway knows what's going on. Um, perhaps not aware of the importance and the the special speciality of what he's about to potentially achieve. But I mean, there's definitely a little bit of a buzz because uh, we don't have so many top Manx athletes. And so when we do have one that does well, it's yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, how is he ranking right now in terms of not just Manx athletes, but like Manx celebrities? Do you have any like YouTube stars or Instagram influencers who are like really, you know, big time Manx people? Or is Cavendish kind of, is he the, um, in the hot seat right now? He's the goat of Manx celebrities. Well, so we have a few, a few kind of famous people, but I think where he is now um, is probably on par with the Bee Gees, who are probably one of our largest exports. Not many people know that the Bee Gees are from the Isle of Man, but they used to live down the road from where um, myself and Mark Cavendish went to school. That's another connection I have. We went to the same high school. Um, there's only five on the Isle of Man, so it was a one in five chance. Um, but yeah, so he's probably on on par with, with the Bee Gees. We do have a YouTube star, but she's only famous in Japan as far as I'm aware. But uh, yeah. BG's. I love it. Um, well, you know, whenever a cyclist starts to mix it up there with uh, pop stars, especially like pop stars from 40, 50 years ago who have like been, you know, ironed into the fabric of our society, then, then that's a good thing to see because that doesn't happen in the United States all the time. The last guy we had to break through that, uh, you know, he he didn't last in the mainstream consciousness that long. But um, one thing that always comes to mind with Mark Cavendish is to think of his longevity as well and like the eras in cycling that his career has spanned. So he really started to come to the fore during the final few years of my first go-around at Vela News when, when I was a young lad in my 20s. And I remember, you know, the 2008 tour when he took his first stage win and following the 2008 tour and some of the storylines there. And that was still sort of this post-Lance Armstrong era, weird, like, 
doping stories and, you know, Michael Rasmussen going on crazy breakaways. And, you know, there was, that was the, um, uh, the Carlos Sastre Tour de France, I believe. And I remember it was sort of, you know, the, the main focus and the talking points at that time were about what was going on in the GC side of the race with the race and sport making efforts to clean itself up. And meanwhile, Mark Cavendish is out there and he beat his first stage win, uh, came against like Oscar Ferreira and Eric Zabel, which is like insane to think about now because I, I think Eric Zabel is in his 50s and Oscar Ferreira is close to being there. It's like you see Eric Zabel at the races and, you know, he's like, he, he looks like a guy who hasn't been a professional cyclist for a really long time. And to think that Cav beat him and is now beating this new crop of guys. I mean, it's this this incredible amount of time that his era spans. Cavendish is racing against Zabel's son. You know, that that's quite an incredible thing to say that, you know, you were racing against and beating the dad, albeit in the end of his career. And now you're racing against and beating the son, although obviously Rick Zabel hasn't quite lived up to the same uh, upper echelons as his dad. But um, yeah, it's quite it's quite incredible. I remember when Mark Cavendish signed with T-Mobile way back when um, I was, you know, I think I was in my first year at university. Um, and, you know, that was quite a big, a very big deal because we hadn't had a, uh, a pro-manx rider in a very long time. You know, and definitely not one that was, you know, signing with the heft uh, that T-Mobile had back then. Um, so, yeah. And then to think that he's done that, he's gone, been through that. He's raced with so many teams now. Um, I, the One of the amazing stats that I saw with his last victory was that he'd won at that uh, town, finishing town the last two times prior to that victory. And each, on each of those occasions, they come in different decades, 2008, 2011, 2021. Like it's whatever you think about Mark Cavendish, you know, it's hard to um, understate just how big it is to be able to win at that level over that length of time. And to be able to do that well in sprinting, which we know is hyper competitive, but tends to be a profession that like these guys have these short little windows, you know, uh, we were talking about, um, Oh, Marcel Kittel, you know, he went from winning five stages of the Tour de France to being out of the sport entirely in two years. Like these guys have this tend to have this very short window where they're at the pinnacle of sprinting and they have the legs and the courage and the team and everything lines up and they're stars of the sport. And I just remember for a while there, it just seemed like every two or three years, there was a new big top sprinter at the Tour de France. And then it's like, boy, you lose a fraction of a percent. And then, you know, you start taking chances, you start crashing, injury, confidence, like the the ego and the confidence of a sprinter, which is so important to their winning, like can topple very quickly. And to know that Mark Cavendish has like had rises, eras of dominance, falls, rise again, era of dominance, fall. And this seems to be his third or maybe his fourth cycle through that. Um, that's to me what sets him apart in history. And I mean, okay, if, if he breaks this record, there will be some people say, well, well, you know, Eddie Merckx was racing in this different era where guys won mountain stages and sprint stages and ruler stages. And, you know, it was such a more of an impressive thing, which, hey, if anyone wants to debate what's more impressive, winning 34 stages back in the 60s and 70s versus winning 34 pamphlets, traditional sprint stages in the 2000s, the 2010s, and the 20s, um, that's open for debate. But I do think that Cavendish 
the longevity and the comeback and the comeback again and the comeback again, um, given how short these sprint careers tend to be, really is what makes him this amazing figure in cycling history. Like, okay, no, he's not winning time trials and mountain stages and he's not as versatile, but like the longevity and to be able to come back and come back again is, is completely unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Like the mental strength that's required to do that as well, because, you know, after struggling, particularly this last um, dip, you know, with his Epstein bar and then, um, you know, his troubles with just, confidence and perhaps teams training the wrong way because he, they were just trying to get him up the mountains quicker, which then kind of took the his top end speed off him. Um, you know, it, it could have been so easy just to, to pack it all in. I mean, it's not like he's been earning a pittance over the last few years. He doesn't, he doesn't need the money to race, you know, um, he's doing this because, he wants to to race. And I think we saw that a little bit towards the end of last year when he did think he was about to retire and he just started having a bit of fun and going out on the breakaways and, you know, doing kind of what he wanted to do and almost finding that passion a little bit again. Um, and then, yeah, but to still have the, the mental strength after all of that to come back and really dig deep and put in the training that's required to perform at that level does take, you know, a significant amount of strength. So, so I have a question I have for you is about Cavendish's legacy and his spot within GB cycling over the last few decades in general, because we have followed him from afar here in North America and known him to be, you know, this top sprinter, kind of a prickly personality, drops a lot of F-bombs. Like, But I, I'm really curious about where that has placed him within the wider picture of GB cycling, because his era has also corresponded with the rise of Team Sky, the rise of Chris Froome, the 2020-12 Olympics, Bradley Wiggins becoming this, you know, international celebrity. Like, he's been there through it all. He predated it, uh, you know, really coming to the fore in 2007-8-9. But then, you know, he continues to win just as um, GB becomes this Tour de France an Olympics winning machine. And from your perspective of following this, how did he slot into um, the rise of cycling as a popular professional sport um, over these last few decades? Um, I think Cavendish has had a kind of at times a slightly difficult relationship with British cycling and the British public um, because of where his wins came. You know, they were often almost... I wouldn't say downplayed, but to a certain extent, almost, um, almost ignored because his wins weren't coming at the Olympics, and that's where the kind of the big push kind of comes from British cycling, and it's where a lot of the um, British public kind of identifies a lot of their sports stars and sports heroes. I mean, one of the things that demonstrated that was they have the annual um, Sports Personality of the Year award, which is obviously not about the best personality as such um but the you know the the most successful um athlete of the year and there were so many times even in his big big pomp and dominance right early in his career where he didn't even get a look in you know he wasn't even nominated let alone like taking that win um and i think things started to change for cavendish a little bit when um you know, he started to be successful again on the track and with the rise of, you know, the Bradley Wiggins 
people started to kind of identify a little bit more with Cavendish. And so even though perhaps in some ways that success is slightly overshadowed what he's done, it's also taken him along for the ride and he's, um, you know, he's become an, a huge personality well-known in the UK. I think it's different in the Isle of Man. You know, in the Isle of Man, um, there's always been a huge support for for Cavendish and it's had a massive impact on the number of people that cycle um, on the Isle of Man. It's always been an incredibly popular sport, which is why for we've actually managed to develop so many kind of pro riders for such a small uh, country. So, yeah, it's been popular, but like the popularity of cycling has gone through the roof. Like the club that we use, both used to ride for as kids has gone from like maybe 150 kids, which is still big, to like 800 kids. It's it's ridiculous. Like it's one of the biggest clubs in Europe. I mean, that is the power of celebrity and the power of heroes. And, you know, we talk about this all the time in American cycling where we're like always looking for that next big hero because they really do inspire the next generation. And, you know, participation at the youth level, which is so important for the next generation of heroes, kind of ebbs and flows by how successful your sport can be at the top end. And, you know, we've seen this cycling in cycling time and again in America. And so it does not surprise me that Mark Cavendish's home club has swelled in popularity because, you know, you want to identify with people who are from where you're from and, you know, and you can kind of trace a through line and have relationships to them. And those, you can't underestimate the power of those relationships. So if Eddie, if uh, Mark Cavendish is able to break Eddie Merckx's record, I have no doubt that cycling will become the official sport of the Isle of Man. There will be no, no longer be that pesky motorbike race. No one will ever try to jet ski to the Isle of Man again. Everyone will just be on bikes all uh, the time. Hey, Saif, before we uh, get going here, um, you know, we are recording this on Tuesday. It's the day before the big Mont Ventoux stage. We head back into some hills and mountains this weekend before uh, the big showdown in the Pyrenees. I mean, what's your assessment of Tadej Pogacar's hold on yellow at this point? I mean, do you see anyone capable of mounting uh, a, a challenge to him? Um, not if you know the situation is normal as it were, um, I don't think anybody's going to be able to topple Pogacar unless he has uh, a big incident, which we all hope he doesn't, because nobody ever wants uh, any of the riders to crash, um, or like he just has a really bad like day. Um, I don't, I can't see anyone who can feasibly overtake him. I mean, they've still got another time trial to go. Um, and the chances are he's going to add some more time into those behind him. Um, you know, there's no no other top riders apart from perhaps Rigoberto Aran, who's still nowhere near the level of Pogacar in the time trial, um, will be able to kind of do anything like vaguely decent um, against the clock. So I think, but then it's, you know, it's a three-week race and anything can happen. So there's there is still a chance that uh, Pogacar could have some some sort of disaster. Yeah, I've been telling people it's very reminiscent of actually this year's Giro d'Italia where Bernal was so strong and grabbed such a stranglehold on the race so, race so early. He did struggle week three, which livened things up and made it very exciting. But, you know, if we would have gotten in our time machines and gone back to the end of stage one, sort of midway through stage two of the Giro, we would have been like, well, it is very obvious who the strongest rider is here. And, you know, 
Some years you have thrilling edge of your seat grant tours where it's decided on the final day and everyone's sitting on pins and needles up to that point. And some years you have textbook chalk grant tours where the strongest person seizes control early and just pounds everyone into submission. And we may be just going through one of those years and it is what it is. And, uh, you know, we have other storylines to follow Mark Cavendish's success. All of Sive's amazing unsung hero pieces on the site are providing us also more salves to follow. Uh, if you're, you're not that into Pogacar uh, steamrolling everyone, but um, lots of good stuff going on at this Tour de France, everyone. Uh, well, Sive, thank you so much for uh, being our Mark Cavendishologist there from the Isle of Man. That's okay. I'm happy to be the Mark Cavendish correspondent. <laughs> We're going to get more amazing Mark Cavendish content out of Sive throughout the race. As um, um, We have some great interviews for today's podcast as well. We have... Um, Rolf Aldog, who was uh, Mark Cavendish's DS for many, many years, talking about the importance of this win streak he's on and giving some insight into what it's like to work with Mark Cavendish. We also have American Nielsen Paulus, who is in the top 10 in the best young rider competition right now. And Nielsen takes us inside what his Tour de France has been like as well. So for Saiv O'Shea, it's Fred Dreyer. Thank you for tuning in to this uh, episode of the Valley News Podcast. And here, let's hear from Ralph Aldug and Nielsen Pellis. Today's episode brought to you by Inside Tracker. When you like what you do, like running, bike racing, enjoying the great outdoors, and you want to do it for life, Inside Tracker can help you. Inside Tracker uses their patented algorithm to analyze your body's data and provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Right now, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store by going to insidetracker.com forward slash velonews. That is Inside Tracker com forward slash Villa News. Thank you so much to Inside Tracker. Let's get back to the show. Now, Mark Cavendish and the, and the record is the big talking point. How many sprint stages do you see between now and Paris? That's a really, really tough question because the Tour de France is completely uncontrolled and wild. And right now, nobody really knows. And, you know, even like for today, there are scenarios where I say, okay, what's the interest of us, of others who might have a shot at the green jersey? Because if we know it's a flat sprint and Mark scores 50 points, it's more or less over if he makes it to Paris. So we can only catch back points on the semi-hilly-hilly stages rather than planning on a flat sprint. You know, can Quickstep should have the interest to, you know, score full points today. But do they have the horsepower? Because till now it's literally impossible to control the bunch if 100 people decide to go into the breakaway and do not like, I mean, race like junior racing, like full gas. First they go full gas, then I will see how the situation is and then, you know, we'll live with the consequences. So it's a very uncontrolled tour. On paper, there's still, what, four sprints. But in reality, everything can happen. You know? Obviously, you, you knew uh, Mark Cavendish, worked with him for many years. Are you surprised to see him winning sprints again at the Tour de France? No, actually not really. I mean, we talked before the Tour, going, not going, and, you know, like discussing it. We know each other for a long time. 
and that he can still win. I think, you know, the last little bit of proof was uh, that Tour of Belgium thing. When you say, like, well, you know, like, if you can beat Caleb Ewan there, and you know, like, everybody is having a little bit better in worse days. So it wasn't Caleb in his best, but, you know, not being in position. Um, always puts Mark in a good spot then. And we also know the leadout train with Morkov in front of him. That's a big credit. So, you know, for me, actually, when I heard that he does have the chance to go, I was pretty convinced that he will, you know, have a chance to go for stage win. The big question is, like, Paris, is that realistic or not? And uh, so we will see. But whatever happens from now on, I think he should, you know, show all the people who criticized him, all the people who wrote him off, that they were pretty wrong. I haven't seen too many apologies right now, to be honest. That would be interesting. You know, it's easy to be a hater and to criticize, but I, I, I think personally it shows much more character from people if they would say, like, you know what, I was completely wrong on him. Thanks to the favorite, thanks to Quickstep to give him the chance that he was denied sometimes in the past. So for him to make it through the Alps is a big step in favor of Mark to have more chances to spread and maybe match or even beat the record during this tour. I don't really think he thinks about the record too much. You know, I think he hates it actually that we speak about the record. Um, because for him it's day by day. You know, can be over tomorrow if he, if he has a one of his uh, days off in the climbs and, you know, can be over. Who knows? If you just look at his race program and I think Quickstep really much realized that to say he didn't have that you know, lots of climbing, lots of base work. So to be fair to him, to get over like this move on two stage, to get over the Pyrenees is a big, big task for him. So, um, but we will see. I mean, you know, like it's a competition. So of course we support Sonny and uh, wherever we can hurt Mark, we will hurt him. <laughs> Just a question about uh, Pagaccio. If, if someone's trying to beat Pagaccio, what can they do to beat him right now? Just well, I hope that he just slows down because on that level nobody can step up to that level that's for sure you know there's nothing that you can say like oh yeah in the third week I will match his performance so what the potential GC guys can only hope for that maybe he's on 110% form and can't hold it maybe there's a situation that gets the race out of control that he and his team can't fix it have to say his team you know last last mountain state was brilliant so everybody said he doesn't have a team what i've seen from the car was like there were like 30 guys left six six of them uh, you know with a new trico jersey so one missed the road but they're still five so you know i would say that it's not really a problem of of the team if if if, uh, if you want to attack him you know don't ask to underestimate his team Palace ahead of the second half of this Tour de France. Uh, you guys are in pole position on the GC. What do you guys got to do to try to beat uh, Tadej Pagaccia? Uh, days like today could uh, could present an opportunity. You never know with the wind and uh, flat stages. I think Mano Imano, he's the strongest guy by far. So, um, yeah, I mean, we can see uh, if we can put some tactics together to try and uh, wrestle the jersey off of him, but it's going to be really tough. So maybe today could be an opportunity. If not today, then um, we'll be looking out for more down the road. Uh, how does that change your uh, kind of personal ambitions during this tour with, with uh, Rico Bento in such a good position? Um, yeah, it doesn't change too much. I mean, the goal coming into the tour was to support him, and that's still the goal even more so now that he's in such a good position. So um, I'll still be looking out for breakaways up the road and uh, to support him if he needs me. So, um, yeah, we'll just have to take my opportunities as they come. But um, in the end, if uh, if I if I don't have any personal success, but Rigo ends up on the podium, it's a, it's a dream. So 
happy for that. What is uh, Rigo's secret uh, during this during these uh, stages? I mean, how does he stay out of trouble, and what can you learn from that? He's just super relaxed. Um, yeah, he never really gets too tense or too stressed. Um, I think he just has the experience to to bide his time and wait and let the others tire themselves out. So. I think his ability to stay uh, relaxed and be smooth in the peloton has uh, helped him this far, so hopefully we can continue that. Vantu, for you, do you know Vantu? And what's your ambition, what's the expectations for the double ascent? Um, yeah, another tough GC day, I think. Uh, probably racing flat out for the breakaway and then a race from behind for the GC, so yeah, I'll be looking out for groups. Uh, if I don't get in one, then I'll just be supporting Rigo all day, but um, even if I do get up the road, it'll probably just be to help Rigo later on in the day. Uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks. Yep. Cheers. 